Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. I'm still amazed how high that guy's voice got. (laughs) Woo, man. I like the lows. I like the highs. There's just something about a quartet, isn't there? And uh, we've got the old past. They actually have songs right at the top of the charts right now. So once again, we've uh, picked a group to come that uh, has uh, not only a tabernacle history, but also uh, is uh, right there at the top of the uh, charts there in the Southern Gospel world. So uh, Luke chapter 22, and you're getting there. We're going to start in verse 7 in just a moment. But first, let's do this affirmation. This is at the end of Luke, and it's where we're headed. It's, repeat this with me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Aren't you glad they obeyed that command? My goodness, when you look at the end of the earth from Jerusalem, it's officially Ringgold, Virginia. But the gospel got here too as it circles the globe and gets to where it's not. And we want to be part of that continuing to happen uh, as we anticipate the return of the Lord. Um, Have you heard about the pastor? And he uh, had a building that needed to get built at the church there, you know. And so he was telling the folks about that on a Sunday uh, night there. And he said, now listen, uh, I will give give the, uh, uh, the privilege of picking three hymns to the first person that comes up after service with a $1,000 check, right? And so the service went on and continued, and and when the service ended, a lady made a beeline right to the front, right? And the pastor said, my goodness, Miss Daisy, it's so neat that you're all in on this building project, so thank you for the check there. And he said, now what hymns do you want? She said, I want that hymn, and that hymn, and that hymn. So got to be sure and communicate clearly, you know, when you're in church. In our study through Luke's gospel, we come now to events that probably happened on the Thursday night of Passion Week. When we think about Passion Week, we think about from the triumphal entry all the way through to Christ arising from the dead and all the events of that week. On the Thursday night, uh, he met with his disciples, and sometimes it's called Maundy Thursday because of uh, Maundy means command, and he gives this new command to love one another as he has loved. So much happened that night that means so much to the body of Christ. Last week we talked about Judas, the lost sheep that Satan used to secure Jesus' betrayal. And today we come to those last hours that Jesus spent with his disciples before that betrayal happened, time he spent with them in an upper room in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 22, we're going to read verses 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? 
And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent, that's in italics here in the New King James Version, and it's with desire I have desired. So I like that they put the word fervent in there. He's doubling up on it. With great desire, with earnest desire, with fervent desire, I've desired for this moment, this last moment with you. You know, we have a relative of Elizabeth that's pretty close to death, and her desire is to get to speak to her kids one more time, you know, before that death comes. And we can think about times like that in our life, that desire to pour just a little bit more in before the time of departure comes. And uh, in the old days, before there were cameras and Facebook and those type things, a a father whose son was going to go on a long journey would study his face. He'd grab him by both ears and look into his eyes intently. He was studying it because he knew that picture in his mind, the face was going to fade over time, and he wanted to be able to process that until that time. And Jesus is saying, I want to imprint some things on you before I go. I've got some last words for you. And Luke's gospel doesn't go through them. If you want some extra credit this week, look from John 12 to John 17 at what Jesus shared with his disciples on that night. It includes my favorite verse, John 15, 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words in you, you can bear much fruit, but without me you can do nothing, nothing that lasts for eternity, nothing of eternal significance. We can build super nuclear stuff and we can have sporting accomplishments, but nothing that will impact eternity without the Lord Jesus. With fervent desire, he said, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And we've covered the details. I, you know, Luke 22 is an a interesting passage to, to preach because there's intertwined in the whole chapter is Judas, intertwined in the whole chapter is Peter, and then these specific incidents. So I refer you back to last week's message on all the things related to the betrayal uh, with Judas. But we want to look at this new order. A new order begins. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time of worship. Lord, I I sensed a joy this morning Uh, despite uh, my personal knowledge of many people that have had a lot of lows this week. Uh, Lord, some for many people, there's been more lows than highs this week, Lord God. And yet, uh, you brought us out during that time of worship, God. And I thank you for that. Lord, as the Purpose Driven Life book says, it's not about us, it's about you. 
and it's about your glory. And so thank you for meeting us in the moments of our pain even, Lord, and lifting us up to where we see you high and lifted up, seated on your throne and eternally reigning God and so powerful. And Lord, you are so powerful that it makes all of our momentary afflictions seem as nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming, time with you forever and ever. And so we're thankful, Lord, for the context you give, this life's highs and this life's lows. Lord, thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper as a way to worship you, as a way to uh, obey your ordinance, Lord, your command to do this in remembrance of me in just another way where we think about how our only hope of heaven is your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, God. Lord, we pray that you'd bless us as we look at this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in verses seven through 12, the preparation for this meal that we're talking about happened. Look at verse seven, it says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Now, last week we talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which included the Passover on Nisan 14. That was the first day of their religious year. Actually, the first of the month was the 14th of that month, Nisan. They'd celebrate the Passover. The 15th, Unleavened Bread would begin and start a week. The 16th, they'd have the first fruits. And Jesus' work for us is gonna follow that. He died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried. He carried our sins far away. He rose on the third day and because he is risen he is the first fruits of all who believing in him will also rise one day and so it's a the, the, all these festivals get fulfilled in him but let's look specifically at this Passover meal turn back to Exodus chapter 12 so if you're newer to Bible study then the first book of the Bible is Genesis and then the second book is Exodus and in Exodus 12 even as God was delivering the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, he gave them a ceremony that would be foundational for them. And we're gonna look at the first 14 verses because he lays it all out there. As they were coming out of Egypt, as they were exiting Egypt, that's why it's called the Exodus, he gave them the Passover because he was gonna pass over their sins in judgment while he was judging their, those who had kept them in bondage, he was redeeming them. And so look what it says here, Exodus 12, verse 1. It says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. Even in there, you see God's provision for those that don't have as much. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it from the 14th day of the, until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. For uh, our Jewish friends, a day starts last night. <laughs> it goes sundown to sundown, not midnight to midnight, right? And so you see this tension a little bit in the Gospels when Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about end time things. Luke, I mean end time things, the, the week of his Passion Week. Luke follows Matthew and Mark in using the Jewish rendering. And John, when he's talking about it to his more Gentile, generic, worldwide audience, he uses the more Roman dating, midnight to midnight. And so sometimes 
sometimes people have a little trouble reconciling what happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with what happens in John. There's the difference. You're going to kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So get this. There's blood. They take the blood, and they put it over their house, right, like that. And um, it was representative of God's blood covering them, atoning for them, covering over them. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Why? Because they're getting ready to travel, right? So it reminded them that when they came out of Egypt, once God delivered them in that 10th plague, they booked it toward the Red Sea and got out of Dodge, right? And God was delivering them and beginning to move them to the promised land. So you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. All 10 of the plagues had a correspondence to a pagan uh, idol god that uh, Egypt celebrated. I am Yahweh. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be put on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. That word memorial is key. Jewish folks had a memorial to celebrate with the Passover, and what God gives us in the Lord's Supper is also going to be a memorial. It's not a sacrament that infuses saving grace. It was a memorial. Uh, it'll be a memorial to you, and you'll keep a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You'll keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So uh, we'll stop there. So, so neat, because the next goes into the unleavened bread part of it. But turn back to Luke 22. So there it was, what they would do with the Passover meal. And it symbolized for them remembering that when the death of the firstborn plague was the final one, because Pharaoh just wouldn't let uh, Israel go. And so God made the um, plagues be increasingly costly to Pharaoh and Egypt. And the last one was going to be there's going to be death because you won't let the people go. Didn't have to happen. Pharaoh could have repented before even the first plague. Moses says the same thing to him every time. Let my people go. Let us out of here so we can go worship God and be a nation like God calls us to be a nation. It took stubborn Pharaoh 10 times. He'd harden his heart. God would let him harden his heart. God was going to use him for sovereign purposes. And God is going to use Judas's disobedience for sovereign purposes, right? So one way or another, you're going to be part of God's plan. You want to be on the correct side of God's plan, right? Uh, to make what he wants to have happen come to pass. And it's going to come to pass just like is foretold in the scriptures. You want to be in on it. You want to go to heaven, not hell. Uh, you want to be in on spreading the gospel, not part of the problem. You want to have your love red hot when he comes back with faith. You do not want to have your love growing cold, right? But they would put that blood over their doors there, and when judgment day came, the judgment angel would see the blood and pass over that house. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, to become sin for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? So when you receive Christ, his blood is covering you, and you will not experience hellfire judgment 
because of that gift that God's given to you. You went in on that. You want to embrace Christ and his blood covers you. That's only half of it. That's God's mercy, not getting what you do deserve, judgment for sins. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. We actually get Christ's imputed righteousness. We sang about that a while ago. And that righteousness will be what God the Father sees on Judgment Day. And that's awesome, isn't it? Absolutely so cool. We've said it before, but it's kind of like the life and times of Danny Campbell is a book here and all the ugly things, you know, and the sins and stuff like that. And over here is the life and times of Jesus Christ and, oh, inside the beautiful things we see in the Word and all that is there. And when you turn to Christ, he swaps the covers of the book, right? So he takes and puts the cover for Jesus on me, and God says, oh, he's all right. And then there it is. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Well, Passover is the oldest continually observed feast in existence day. It's celebrated for some 3,500 years at this point. It had been celebrated for 15 centuries when Jesus walked on the earth. It's the first and foundational Jewish feast. The other feasts are built upon it. The month in which Passover is celebrated begins the religious year for Israel. And the single word, we've already described it, but the single word that best describes the Passover is the word redemption. The word redemption. Passover celebrates God's redemption of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Now look at verse 8. It lets us know that Jesus sent Peter and John ahead of the other disciples to the city, because the Passover had to be taken in the city, to secure the Passover lamb and the place they would take the Passover. Now, why do you think, after last week's message, Jesus sent, instead of all going together to do it, why do you think he sent a couple disciples like Peter and John ahead? Well, it may very well be that if he hadn't, and or if Judas also knew the place, that the arrest of Jesus would have happened in the upper room before they could take the Lord's Supper, before he could teach them all the wonderful things of the upper room discourse. It's possible uh, and intriguing to think about that all that might have happened that way. Now, I wish I knew more about the mysterious way they met up with the man carrying the pitcher as described down in verse 10. Uh, was that an angel posing as a man? Maybe. Uh, was it a man who had been told what to do in a dream? Sometimes that happens in the scriptures or a vision. Was it someone Jesus had spoken to previously? We aren't told, but it sure fires the imagination. It'll be interesting to find out later on when we're with the Lord. Um, now, in those days, mostly women carried the pitchers of water, so seeing a man doing it would be a dead giveaway. This is the guy. And if it was an angel, he may have even winked at him, right? Like, you know. Maybe old Peter and John were like, I don't see him, I don't see him. Hello, over here. You know. But anyway, they let, he led them to the place they were going to take the Passover meal with Jesus. Now, we could also wish to know some more of the details about the master of the house, the one who was going to give his upper room for this momentous occasion. He had apparently had it reserved, and it would only take mention of the teacher for him to show them there. Now, many people in Jerusalem did this. I mean, you know, you, if you live around VIR and you got a guest room or two, you might rent it out, right, when there's races or something like that. You might even rent a whole house out or something like that. Well, in Jerusalem, they would rent out their rooms. So many people in Jerusalem kept such an extra room for pilgrims coming to the Jewish festivals. But this upper room is going to become the most famous of them all, for it's here that Jesus would take his last supper with his disciples. And uh, Rembrandt, I believe it was, made a famous painting out of it. Or was that da Vinci? Anyway, 
It's pretty famous. Um, Look at verse 13. It says, Peter and John went and found it just as had been said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So now let's look at the old order Passover meal, and I'm going to tell you why I'm using that word order in a moment. It'll become clear to you. Look at verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, and that makes us think not only of his impending suffering, but also this time, this last words with his disciples, Jesus sat down on the 12 apostles with him. Verse 15, he said to them, with desire, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And at this point, he's been talking about suffering, right? We've been leading up to this since Luke chapter nine. This day is coming, it had to happen. And he's within 24 hours now of probably it all happening, which is pretty sobering to think about. And he says, uh, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We're going to look at Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, after a while. That happens at the end of the tribulation and as the um, beginning of Jesus reigning on earth physically happens according to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 17. It says, then he took the cup and he gave thanks. Uh, Luke alone is going to mention that there were more than one cup. In the Passover ceremony, there's actually four. Some of you have been to a Passover, a Seder ceremony at the Martin's house, and they walk you through it brilliantly. And some of uh, you might have been to one at other people's houses. We've been to a few in our lives. And there were four cups in the Passover observant. Luke mentions two of them. Uh, Matthew and Mark just get to the Lord's Supper part, but Luke clearly frames it as it was in the context of uh, a Passover uh, Seder meal. Now, you're aware that the Jewish Passover meal is sometimes called a Seder, right? I just said it. The word Seder means order, and there's a definite order the meal came to follow in obeying the order given to observe this meal back in Exodus 12. Now, in Exodus, as they're to take the Passover, the Lord used four expressions to remind them of the time they came out of Egypt. He said, I will bring you out, and he did. He said, I will rescue you from their bondage, and he did. I will redeem you, and he did. And I will take you as my people. And so they had four cups of wine, each celebrating those I wills that are there. And they're taken during Passover to reflect the joy of the Lord's redemption. The first cup involved the father lifting the cup, and he'd lift it up toward heaven, and he'd recite the Kiddush. They call it the Kiddush, the prayer of sanctification, the cup of thanksgiving is what it was called. And look here, it says Jesus took and give thanks. He's taking a last Passover meal with them, but he's also taking the first Lord's Supper meal with them. So he says, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the physical kingdom of God comes. And within that context, and we're going to walk through a little bit more what happens in that meal and how it relates to the Lord's Supper we now observe as believers. But within that context in verses 19 and 20, the new order Lord's Supper is given. So verse 19, you see it there? It says, and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So simple, yet so beautiful. And it's always so meaningful when you take the Lord's Supper together. But um, you may have 
heard the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist, and that comes from the Greek word for give thanks, Eucharisto. So uh, when it's called the Eucharist, it's coming right from that Greek language, uh, which means to give thanks. Now, when Jesus said, this is my body, he did not mean the bread magically becomes his body when it's partaken. That has been Roman Catholic theology for some time, that when you take the bread, when you take the wine, you are literally eating Christ's body and drinking his blood. And so there have been uh, a softened version of that that the Lutherans had once upon a time, and Baptists have joined all those that said, no, just as the Passover ceremony is a memorial of remembrance, that's what Baptists and others are doing when they look and see these things. It's kind of like this, you know, uh, just English class. When Jesus said, I am the door, did he mean he was a door? Did he, when he said, I am the true vine, did he mean he was a vine? No, it's a, what, a metaphor, right? And we understand what he's saying. Um, it's, it, didn't mean, it doesn't mean there's a door someone on earth that when we walk through it saves us. Jesus is the door in the sense that if you don't go through him, you won't go to heaven, right? This is my body means he's the source of spiritual life. So just as physical bread keeps us physically alive, trust in Jesus keeps us spiritually alive. We are identifying by faith in him when, uh, what Christ has done for us. Now, let's set the fuller meaning of the body broken in the context of the Passover. He says, Jesus broke the bread and he passed it around. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the Passover, they'd have three big matzah crackers, right? Three big matzah crackers. Uh, three, like that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and so three big matzah breads, and they're wrapped in a linen napkin. In the ceremony, the father, leading his family in this Passover time, pulls out the middle cracker and breaks it in two. I, I said in the ceremony, the father pulls out the one in the middle and breaks it in two. This is my body broken for you. He puts half of it back in and he takes the other half and hides it and later on the children are gonna go and search for it. They call it the Afikoman, probably saying that wrong. So our God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? The one in the middle is broken in the ceremony and the one in the middle was broken for our sins. At the second cup, the story of the Passover is remembered in detail. So that first uh, thing Jesus is doing there corresponds to the first cup. At the second one, they tell the story of the Passover in detail. And in the Passover ceremony, they would responsively read or sing Psalms 113 through 118. And if you are just a kind of hyper person who loves to, you know, you say, well, you're going too slow, Pastor, I can do two things at once, stay in Luke 22 with me. And go ahead and turn to 113 to 18 and read through that, just skim through that while I'm going through. But I'm going to take you to some of them too. Because after the first two cups, they sang the first half of those Psalms, 113 to 118, that were part of the Passover ceremony. And it would include verses like Psalm 113, 7 and 8 that says, He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes. Pretty cool, right? The suffering but the raising. Pretty neat. 
The father would then break the upper matzah and remainder of the middle matzah into pieces and distribute those to everyone. But they had to eat them dipped in bitter horseradish and sweet apple, uh, they call it haraset. And it reflects the sweetness of redemption in the midst of their bitter slavery. For us, it's a reminder of what Christ experienced for us, that to bring us to salvation, he had to experience the bitterness of the cross. Hebrews, what does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, right? He despised the shame of the cross. Uh, The joy wasn't actually dying on the cross. In fact, he had that moment where he said in his humanness, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering, the cup of wrath to be poured out on sins. But nevertheless, Father, not as I will, but as you will, your your will be done. Jesus, while on earth, modeled for us submission to the Father's will, submission to him. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we're submitting our request to him, and we're saying, God, if you say no for a greater yes, just like you did with Jesus, I'm okay with that, because I want your greater yeses in my life, and I'm too stupid to know what to do for myself all the time. So I think this ought to happen, but if you say no, I'll thank you, Lord, because you're obviously vetoing for my own good and for your glory. And so there he is, the bitter mixed with the sweet for him on the cross during the Passover meal, reminding them of bitter slavery, but the sweetness of redemption. Well, then they would take the meal, eating the Passover lamb. And after the meal, they'd send the kids out, you know, to find that afakomen, to find that uh, broken uh, cracker, you know, that thing there and bring it back, the matzah that was there. And when it was found, everyone would have a piece of it in reminder of the Passover lamb and its significance. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, look at Luke 22.20. It says, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, that is the eating of the lamb, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. The third cup is the, thir- is the cup of redemption, and that's the one Jesus is lifting now. And Passover was closely associated, still is, with the fervent hope for the coming of the Messiah. Many times they say, next year in Jerusalem, and the Messiah will be there, right? And when Jews go to the Western Wall now, that only part left of the tabernacle complex, and pray, they're praying for two things. They're praying for the coming of the Messiah, and they're praying for to be able to restore the temple and worship again there. Next year in Jerusalem is the cry. So what do they do after that third cup? You know what they do? They send the children to the door. They send the children to the door, front door, to hopefully welcome the prophet Elijah. Did you see him? Nope, not yet. And the reality is he has already come. The forerunner has John the Baptist and then Jesus. And in his second coming time, there will also be the forerunner again, maybe Elijah himself resurrected from the dead along with Moses and all that's coming. Well, who is the blood shed for? In the New Order Supper, it's all who will ever believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ is our Passover lamb. John 3, 36, the one who believes has life. The one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save everybody on earth, but it's efficient to save only those who repent of their sins and turn and trust Christ and become one of the elect. Amen? And so... All sin's going to get dealt with one of two places, at the cross or at the great white throne judgment. 
When you turn to Christ, your sin gets dealt with there. But if you don't, if you remain in your sin, you will be judged at the great white throne judgment and God will rightly have you in the lake of fire because where else is he going to put rebels who never repent, never turn back to him? The offer of mercy and grace has been made. You've despised it. You say, well, why didn't he just have people cease to exist? That's not how a soul works. (laughs) Once God creates a soul, that soul's going to be around forever And if you want to go to the place where he is and live with him, then the only other place for rebels is the lake of fire. He created it for the devil and his angels, he says. But where else is he going to put those who will not turn to him? The wrath of God, the righteous, right wrath of God remains on those who don't turn to Christ. So the blood shed, the blood of the new covenant, that blood that brings believing Jews and Gentiles together in the church of Jesus. It's pretty neat when you think about it. For the first 2,000 years, there were only Gentiles. Then God called out Abraham, and for the 2,000 years after that, there were Jews and Gentiles. And for these last 2,000 years, there's been a third entity, the blood-bought church of Christ made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Pretty cool when you think about it like that. Matthew 26, 30 makes clear that after the supper, they sang a hymn. I mean, a a singing hymn, not hymn, 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 right? Um, And uh, they sang a hymn, undoubtedly finishing up Psalm 113 to 18. That's why I had you turn there. Some of you have been skimming those and those along the way. And it's so powerful when you think about it. I just want to share with you some of the things that they were singing even as they were taking this new ceremony based on the old ceremony, both pregnant with meaning about what Christ has done for us and our God is a redeeming God. Psalm 116.3, the pangs of death surrounded me and the pangs of shale laid hold of me. I was good as hell bound, the psalmist says. But Psalm 116 verses 8 and 9 says, For you have delivered my soul from death. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And they sang that as part of this meal as they were closing up and going to the next thing. Psalm 116, 13 through 15 says, I will take up the cup of salvation. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because they get to be with God after that. So powerful. Psalm 116, verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I like Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. Jesus is the door. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. They were singing, in essence, what he was gonna teach them in John 14, 6. Psalm 118, 21 and 22 says, I will praise you for you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Eddie sang it for us earlier. Do you get what's happening here? We saw that a few passages ago, didn't we? As he came in, they were awed by the temple, and he said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. They had rejected the real cornerstone, their Messiah, come to them. In Psalm 118, they sang about how that would happen. At the Passover ceremony, they ended just about by singing those words, except after that they said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all there, and they lived it out with the bread and the cup 
they also sang it out as they went out. The fourth cup is the cup of acceptance or praise. And we think that Jesus will take that cup with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So turn to Revelation chapter 19. Every time I lead in the Lord's Supper or take the Lord's Supper, one of the things I'm thinking is these words of Jesus. Because I'm so aware of my own flaws and imperfections and inability to lead um, God's people. And yet he has given the wonderful task of getting to take the Lord's Supper together, right? And uh, I'm so mindful that Jesus himself, when he led that one, said, this is going to happen again when we all get home. (laughs) When all the blood-bought Church of Christ gets home, he's going to lead us in it. And it just gives you goosebumps thinking about that. Look at how it said some in Revelation 19 as it gives us anticipation. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. (laughs) That's me and you in heaven and everybody there, right? As the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. That's us, the bride of Christ. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So if you come to Christ, not only are you uh, forgiven of your sins, not only do you get the Holy Spirit to indwell you, not only do you get a new church family, you know, with the body of Christ to help you grow and serve him, you get spiritual gifts and you've already got physical talents to serve him and help advance his kingdom on earth. But you've also got a reserved place in heaven and you've got a reserved ticket for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's possible that will be the time where he'll reward the saints for what they've done for him. I hate the Grammys, I hate the Oscars, but when I got to go to Bryan College and they put me in the Hall of Fame, my son snarkily said to me, you didn't mind getting that award, did you, Dad? You know? And I said, no, that was pretty neat, son. On earth, we love to be recognized, don't we, for what we've done. And the Bible says there's a reward time coming for believers where what we've done for him will be rewarded. And, of course, all we'll think about is, really, God's going to let me into heaven based on what he did for me? That's the only reason I'm there. And yet he's going to celebrate what you and I did for him. And that is a tremendous motivation. To me, that's the second highest motivation. Pure love is the first highest, right? He loved us, we love him. But hope not only of heaven, but also that he takes into account all that we do for him and will reward it. That's right there. The next one is faith. Faith, hope, and love are the higher motivations. And faith, what is faith? Faith is saying the same God who saved me back on December 16th, 1984, knows me and what's best for me better than I do. So I'm grateful for what he did there, but I'm gonna live by faith in him today because he's an awesome savior. He's an awesome Lord. He's the awesome one to follow, right? Faith, hope, and love. Well, the Hebrew word seder means order in English, as we said. And this last cedar meal Jesus took with his disciples turned into the first Lord's Supper. In Jesus' new covenant order, believers obey the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's important to talk about it for a minute. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two things that Jesus commanded us to do as what we would call ordinances or rites. Uh, But we believe Catholics are wrong in calling them sacraments. Um, In the Middle Ages, 
the Catholics had 30 different sacraments that a good Catholic had to follow. And then at the Council of Trent, which was in opposition to the Protestant Reformation, they said, no, no, there's only seven. It begins when you're born, when they sprinkle you in baptism. There, you know what Catholics doctrine teaches? Look it up. This is what's believed. I was, uh, you know, sprinkled like this when I was a kid, uh, a baby. They believe when that sprinkling baptism happens, that original sin is removed from you and you're guaranteed going to at least purgatory instead of hell. I read my Bible to say your parents can't do that for you. You know, you're born into a state, but you're born again into the kingdom. And you, when you're born again, the way you testify to your new birth before others is to be immersed. Baptism means immersion, to be immersed as a believer, right? But you don't do it to save you. It's interesting, we've got some other sects out there, not S-E-C-T-S is what I'm saying there. That's hard to say. We've got some sects that get this wrong. They say the act of baptism saves you, but that's what the Roman Catholics believe. They're thinking it's a sacrament that the physical act saves you. And they've got a verse or two that they like to say with that. But the whole counsel of the scriptures is that salvation is by God's grace through our faith and a spiritual baptism happens at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, washing you of all your sins. And then you get physically baptized as a public testimony of the inward reality. So Roman Catholics from the 1500s onwards have had seven sacraments. It begins with sprinkling. It includes confession, where you're relying on the priest to be your go-between between you and God. It involves the time you take the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and if the priest says you can't take it, he's denying you salvation. He's cutting you off. The sacraments get you saved and keep you saved, and when you die, you're supposed to get a Catholic priest to rush right there and perform the last rites. You've seen that in movies. That's why it's such a big deal. And the only reason we bring it up is because none of that is biblical. The biblical is that there is the Lord's Supper, so baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are the two ordinances of the Lord. And so we obey them as memorials, as testifying things, but not as that which has sacramental or saving significance for us. Now think of the genius of the Lord in giving us the two ordinances. They both make us think of what Christ did for us, right? When you get baptized... Um, and you only do it once on the correct side of salvation. So whenever you know that you've made your peace with God, you then get baptized as a public testimony of the inward reality that's happened. You only do it once. But you're testifying there about what you're relying on for eternal life. It's not a holy bath. That's pagan religions that think of it as a holy bath. The water represents death. You going under it represents that the old you is dead. And you are trusting the preacher to get you up out of the water, right? <laughs> and what you're testifying to is that just as I'm trusting this preacher to pull me back up out of the water, I'm trusting Christ to bring me out of death to eternal life. And you're stating before all, my faith is in him and him alone for my eternal salvation. You do it once. The genius of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. Well, you do the Lord's Supper more than once. Some churches do it weekly, others do it monthly, we do it quarterly, some do it yearly. It's not specified in the scripture, it says as often as you do, make sure you're doing it in remembrance of me. And it's such a powerful time, especially when you think about the world's peoples and how many of them throughout time were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, right? And yet they, were, they, they heard the word, they weren't dumb, they just couldn't read, many of them. And when they heard the preacher reading scripture and others reading scripture, they could remember it, and they did. 
And they also had, though, this Lord's Supper that would be a picture for them of uh, what God wanted for them, right? To trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. So just like baptism is a testimony, so was the Lord's Supper. You're saying, even as I eat this bread and drink this wine, and they give me physical sustenance, I am trusting in Christ alone for my spiritual life. And I do that uh, over and over again. Well, when we think about 1 Corinthians 11 and what that adds to the mix, Paul said that before you take the Lord's Supper, there should be a time of examination of yourself, right? And so uh, I like to think of the Lord's Supper and the time coming and the fact that we do it more than once, baptism once, the Lord's Supper more than once, repeatedly, uh, like a piano tuning fork. If we were to tune this piano by the piano in room 307, they'd both get out of tune together. But if we take a perfect pitch tuning fork and tune both pianos by that tuning fork, they'll get back in tune and then we'll have to retune them again. Our lives need retuning, don't they? We come together in the word and it retunes us. First John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? So where's our fellowship come from? The fact that we sit in the same pews together? No, if, if you are an unrepentant sinner and uh, another person next to you is following the Lord and, and keeping careful accounts of their sin and letting the Lord wash them clean, you don't have fellowship, sorry. You're just in a pew together. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So the Lord's Supper, the Lord gave a regular time for us to evaluate how we're doing according to his word. Three questions you ought to ask yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. The first one is, am I trusting in Christ alone for salvation? It, it again is a testimony. The only hope I have for heaven is what he did for me, not what I do for him. So it's a reminder, it's a public demonstration of that every time. Secondly, it's a, uh, have I confessed all known sin to God? It's that tuning fork thing, right? Sometimes knowing the Lord's Supper's coming and knowing you're gonna be with others, like, oh, wait a second, you know, I got this problem I need to deal with and uh, I need to get it right because I want God to bless me. It's a fellowship question, right? An ongoing, vibrant fellowship question. So the Lord gave it regularly so people that weren't thinking about it otherwise and our tendency is to easily hide our sins from ourselves and spouses and others and things like that, taking it in integrity means asking yourself whether you're really right with God and there's any sin that you need to confess and forsake, right? And that's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, some of you turkeys, <laughs> you've, you've eaten it without examining yourselves, you've eaten it without repenting of sin, and that's why some of you got sick and died in your midst. God can send a plague on a church that won't repent of its sin. Well, that's a good reason to just take it quarterly, isn't it, pastor? <laughs> um, no, it, it, we could do it every month and I'd be fine, but it's just how the Lord works it out. And then Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends upon me, am I at peace with all people? When you know the Lord's Supper is coming, there's that vertical, us and the Lord, confessing our sin, receiving his forgiveness. There's that horizontal between us and others. Do you see the genius of the Lord here? He put a regular time on the church just uh, coming together where you would be forced to say, have I called somebody a blankety blank blank and I need to go and say, forgive me of that and let's work this out, you know? Or do they think that of me and I need to go work it out, you know? And he gave that regular time for us to make sure our horizontal relationships are right so we really can practice congregational love and encouragement and love one another as he has loved us. Pretty powerful, huh? You know Judas couldn't stand to be in that midst since he was in denial of the Lord. 
and he got out of there as quick as he could. But these disciples, can you imagine the next time they led it with a group that they led and so on and so forth? And can you feel us doing it today, going all the way back 2,000 years to Christ doing it with his disciples? You say, well, gosh, Danny, it'd be a good time to go ahead and take it today, wouldn't it? No, because we had to get this down, and you had to get it down, because you need to know that we do it on fifth Sundays here at the Tabernacle, either in the morning or the evening. The next one will be in the morning, March 29th, I believe it is. And you need to prepare yourself for that time, a time to worship the Lord, a time to really deal with your sin. You ought to deal with sin all the time anyway, but you know it's coming, and also the He gives you that time to get relationships right. Speaking of offering, uh, uh, Jesus one time said, if you know your brother's got something against you, hey, forget about the offering. Go make things right and then bring your offering, right? Jesus is serious about this inner relationships where we are together doing what God told us to do and walking in the light as he is in the light. He gave us this brilliant time to help us with that. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.